Welcome to the podcast series from the Decision-Making Voices from the Field Leadership Seminars at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. Good afternoon. My name is Martin Reedy. I'm a first-year master's student in the Department of Society, Human Development, and Health here at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'd like to welcome you today to Decision Making, Voices from the Field, and our guest speaker, Secretary Veneman. Most recently, she served as the Executive Director for the United Nations Children's Fund from 2005 to 2010, where she oversaw the operations of 11,000 employees dispersed across 150 countries. In 2009, Forbes named her to the 100 Most Powerful Women's List. Prior to that, she worked with President George W. Bush as a secretary for the United States Department of Agriculture. Before working in the White House, she also served as a secretary for the Department of Food and Agriculture. She is trained as a lawyer and has received a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of California, Davis, public policy master's degree from the University of California, Berkeley, and her Juris Doctorate from the University of California, Hastings School of Law. She currently serves on the boards of the Alexion and Nestle Corporations and devotes additional time to several nonprofit organizations. She has a special interest in working for the empowerment of women and children and working on global health security. She also participates annually in the World Economic Forum and the Clinton Global Initiative Forum. Thank you. I will now turn it over to Dr. Wi-Fi Falsey. Well, it's a real pleasure, pleasure to have you with us here today. And um, uh, you have covered a lot of uh, experiences, both in the public sector and, and more recently a little bit in the private sector. Uh, and the idea of this series is to provide um, lessons learned from your experiences uh, to students. Um, uh, many of our students are uh, aspiring to make a difference in the world uh, as soon as they finish their training here, uh, just like you have uh, in, in your uh, career. Um, so uh, this will be an interactive session. I'll start with one question. I'm told I have only one question. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, there are lots of questions that will come from the audience, uh, I'm sure. Um, so, uh, Anne, you served as uh, Secretary of uh, the Department of Agriculture. Um, uh, it's an annual budget of $113 billion at that time and 110,000 employees. And then you took on the role of UNICEF Executive Director, which is a little bit smaller organization, but still 11,000 staff uh, uh, spread over 150 countries, like Martin has said. So. Uh, you have multiple experiences over your career. Perhaps if we can start with um, sharing with us some of your um, experiences, lessons learned, particularly around leadership, uh, what insights you have uh, accumulated over time. Well, thank you, and thank you so much for this opportunity. It's a pleasure to be here today and a pleasure to be at the university and, and participating in this, uh, this series, this leadership series. Um, as you say, I've had the opportunity throughout my career to serve in, in several leadership positions. I, I started out early on as a lawyer and, and, and then had the opportunity to go to the Department of Agriculture where I was involved in a lot of international and particularly trade issues. 
ultimately becoming the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture. And then uh, eventually I went back to California and became the Secretary of Agriculture out, or Food and Agriculture out there. And then two years later became the Secretary of Agriculture for the US and then went to UNICEF. Um, I think there's many things you learn um, throughout your career along the path of, of a career like I've had about working in large organizations, about leadership. And of course, I think um, certainly your experience builds as you progressively go through different organizations. And I think experience is one of the best teachers. Um, so I would certainly say that um, you learn as you go along. But I think one of the things that's very important about leadership is to have vision, is to really kind of provide that vision for the organization. Many people have written articles about the fact that as the leader of an organization or in a leadership position, you shouldn't just manage. You should provide that vision and you should really help to lead. As part of that as well, I think it's very important to be an innovative leader, to provide that, that vision with a view toward the future, to understand what kinds of innovation is taking place in your field, in what you're doing, in technology. I mean, when you see the pace of change today, if a leader doesn't keep up with innovation, I think it's very difficult to effectively help the organization move along in the right direction. Um, I think another area that's very important, um, and I have found throughout my various positions, is the importance of collaboration. And I mean collaboration at every level. So collaboration within your organization, helping different parts of your organization collaborate, but also collaborating outside your organization with other organizations that are doing similar things or complementary things. Um, I have found in working in large organizations that so much of what you do is in very stove-piped type of situations where people are very focused on what they're working on, but they don't really see how it fits in with other things that are going on. And I think a leader has to, to provide that and help others see how what they're doing fits in with what is going on around them as well and what others may be doing. Um, so I think, and I think with all of that, it, it also is to look for how do you obtain maximum results? Mm -hmm. And you're not gonna obtain maximum results in terms of what you want to accomplish in the organization. For example, in UNICEF to try to help to reduce under five mortality, reduce, you know, increase the number of children, getting education and so forth, unless you have collaborative approaches and you're working together toward common goals of achieving these big, these big results. I think very um, consistent with that is, is looking at how to use integrated approaches. So we've talked uh, many times about how important it is to look at the inextricable link between the health of a child and the health of the mother, or to look at the importance of looking at nutrition and health. Uh, childhood nutrition, maternal nutrition, nutrition as we look at the issues today of obesity, and how that overlays on so much. You see 
agriculture connected with nutrition, agriculture connected with water, agriculture connected to the environment. And unless we see all these interconnections, I think, and begin to build, um, again, the collaboration and the alliances, that it's difficult for a leader to be the most effective that he or she can. Um, I mean, I also believe that a leader must simply apply good common sense and use his or her in intuition. Um, I mean, it's important to get as much information as you possibly can from those who are the experts to learn as much as you can, but then to really learn and apply common sense. You know, as I've been in organizations, uh, you know, sometimes you, you come in new and you say, well, why do we do it that way? And they say, well, that's, that's the way it's always been done. So I've developed this, this thing that I say, the answer I least like to hear is we do it that way because it, that's the way it's always been done. I mean, I just simply think <coughs> that if you don't know why you're doing something in an organization, um, then we ought to start asking the questions why and is it time to look at it a different way. And so I think that, what, that is an important part of leadership as well. Um, the other part, of course, is asking the right questions. I mean, I tend to be a very inquisitive leader. I like to ask questions, understand what people, why people are making recommendations, why they think, why they think the way they are. Ask questions about what do you think about, is, is this related to this over here or over here? So I think asking the right questions is important for a leader. And finally, I think that hiring good people is extremely important. Um, you hear a lot about leaders who don't want to, that, that are concerned about hiring people or they hire people like themselves. I think it's very important for a leader to look at hiring people that bring strengths that they might not have. And as far as I'm concerned as a leader, hire the smartest people you can because they're going to give you the best advice and, and, get, these peop and get people that work with you um, to really be open and honest with you about what they think is the right direction so you can really analyze what needs to be done and, the, and how to lead the, the organization in that direction. That's very helpful, that's very insightful. Um, you talk about sort of the culture of an organization and how it's hard to accept it sometimes and you need to change it. How long would you take when you sort of take on a new position before you start changing things. How do you go about setting priorities and including others in that process so that you do not leave them behind? Well, it's very, it's, it depends on the organization. We had one of these leadership discussions the other day here with Judith Roden and she talked about how important it is to understand culture and I could not agree with that more. I think it's very, very important to understand the culture of your organization. And in large government organizations or UN organizations or even large businesses, there, there are very ingrained cultures that don't change easily. Um, and I think you have to look at, you know, how do you begin to make that change? Now, when I, one of the things I did when I was Secretary of Agriculture in California is we went through, it was in the mid-90s, it was a time when everyone was going through strategic planning and coming up with their mission, vision, values. And that was a very helpful exercise and we, it was very time consuming. And we did a lot to try to engage the entire um, workforce 
uh, in, in various discussions, you know, having people bring feedback, give feedback, and, and, and as I said, very time consuming, but worthwhile. But then it is a continuous process that you have to follow up on. Um, the, the Department of Agriculture is such a large organization dispersed all over the country, the various parts of it really operate as separate organizations. Mm -hmm. And so you really need to bring leadership on a number of issues. One of the things I encountered when I was at the Department of Agriculture is we had a number of crises situations where the leadership really became critical. So when I first got there, there was a huge outbreak of, uh, of a disease called foot and mouth disease in cattle in Europe, which is not um, a problem with human health but it is very threatening and a very fast-spreading disease that can quickly decimate, you know, your food supply and whole, and it becomes an environmental problem in terms of what you, how you dispose of animals and so forth. So that was the first crisis. That was in the very beginning, within the first three weeks that I was there. Then, of course, you know, within that first year, we dealt with the situation of 9-11, of um, which put the entire government into crisis mode in terms of what were the threats to the particular areas that we were, our departments were involved with. Um, and so we all began, you know, planning around scenarios and what, and the threat scenarios that were, that were then um, changing the kind of world we lived in after 9-11. We then had, um, Outbreaks of, of bird flu, not the the flu one, the high path one that went to humans, but it could have mutated to that. So we had to deal with those kind kinds of, of of crises, and then of course we had our first case of what they call mad cow disease or BSC, which was again a big threat to the potential of the food supply, and we had to act very quickly. Um, and speak to the public, the, the crisis communication in that was absolutely critical. Uh, so, you know, even though you have a big diverse department, when it comes to crisis, there's, there's ways you have to really bring it together. And so, to some extent, a lot of the time we were in crisis mode and trying to bring people together in, around crises. It happened to be particular to the time I was there. In UNICEF, one of the th uh, we tried a number of things in terms of working to to move the organization in, in the right direction. Integrated approaches, mm -hmm. helping people understand the links among things like nutrition, health, education, um, the mother and child, as I was talking about before. Another thing we did was really tried to get people more focused around data and results. I found that the data that so much of which is developed by UNICEF, whether it's child mortality data through the, the surveys that are done, I mean, they do the global data on these issues. And yet, as I went around to my various country offices, I found that they weren't focused on where they were in the Millennium Development Goals. So we started working with our statistics offices to develop a lot of country data that became then a tool for our country directors to really engage with their own governments about progress being made, about where progress wasn't being made. 
I think this was very helpful as well um, to, to move the organization in a much more results-driven, data-driven direction that uh, I know many of our people were, were very um, happy about having that kind of, those kinds of tools to better do their jobs. We also um, at UNICEF tried to bring people together around common things. I held, in about a year after I was there, I held an all-Africa meeting, and we had not had all the representatives from Africa come together and really talk about what, what are some of the common issues you're dealing with? How are you dealing with them? Um, you know, we really engaged a conversation about the crisis of AIDS. This is in 2000, at the time we held the meeting, it was 2006, that, you know, the AIDS money was just coming into, into Africa in a very significant way. How were we playing a role in that? What were the issues of children? You know, with prevention of mother-to-child transmission, there was, was a, I mean, the orphaned children, you know, still estimated that there are over 15 million children that were, have lost one or both parents to AIDS. What are the issues around that? Um, what are, how do we reduce child mortality? What are the immunization rates looking like? How, are we, how do we help to engage the conversations about education and not just getting kids into school, but the quality of education? So. I think we really began to, to build a, a, a dialogue around how to move forward so that country directors weren't just working sort of in their individual silo in their country, but began to have a, a broader um, strength around them about how to, how to move forward and support about how to move forward and the, and the tools we were developing. I think we strengthened our ties with, with organizations like WHO on health, um, the World Food Program on nutrition. I mean, a lot of times these organizations, and we both know this, Lou and I know this, they tend to be competitive with each other instead of cooperative. And it, it's critical that these organizations work collaboratively together. And yet, I don't know what it is about organizations that become so inward and protectionist about what they're doing as opposed to outward in terms of their results. And I think that's, that's what we really need to constantly think about is how to achieve ultimate results that it's about children, it's not about the organization you're in. It's a sort of diverse set of experiences from a crisis in the first three weeks and obviously you learn as you're doing and learn from that for the next instant all the way to um, sort of methodically sort of planning and systematically trying to bring people together, um, like the All-Africa meeting that you have referred to. Um, one of the things that you have been quite successful, in my opinion, at UNICEF really is trying to bring together these silos of um, health, nutrition, education into one integrated set of programs uh, that had an impact on, on child health. Um, how did you managed to keep in touch with uh, what's really happening on the ground uh, in the various countries or in the Department of Agriculture, such a vast sort of uh, enterprise really. Were you able to sort of have the real happenings fed back to you regularly? Yeah, I think, I think this is, in a large organization, this is always a difficult thing to try to do. Um, Obviously, you know, I traveled a lot. I traveled a lot around the country and the world with, in my agriculture jobs. Um, you know, you have offices 
all over the country and the world in agriculture. Um, not not as many in the world as we did certainly in UNICEF, but I, I mean, to some extent, you've got to visit and to understand firsthand what people are doing. So that's number one. And then as you visit different offices, you also realize, well, one may be doing something this way, and you begin to you know, create dialogues when you visit about how they're doing something, why they're doing something. And then when you, you bring back good examples and begin to speak about them and, and share that, that others may not have the opportunity to do. So one thing is, is I think field visits mm -hmm. is very important. I think one of the things that has allowed a different kind of ability for organizations to communicate is technology. You can actually now send out messages to all 100,000 employees. Um, it's not an impossible thing to do. That's something you didn't used to be able to do. It had to go from one layer to another layer to another layer. And likewise, you can share you know, information that's important all the way up in a much more, you know, horizontal way. And there, but the problem with organizations is they still have a very old school, many times, an old school idea of if you work for me and I work for them, then the information still, even though there's email and you could copy everything, it has to come through them and then come through them, and it just delays it. Um, and it, it, it's, it's almost a power thing, and you have to begin to change organizations from thinking like that, because that's been sort of the traditional way that a lot of organizations and people in the organizations have tried to sort of control what, what their own fiefdoms are, instead of realizing that you can accomplish so much more with shared information and collaborative processes. And I, I think this is just, it's, I don't know whether it's human nature, but to some extent, the, these organizations develop these kind of personalities, and I think what you have to do is, is begin to, to, to move them. Um, we also pulled together, in addition to the All Africa meeting, and we did two of those, you know, one a couple of years later, we did also um, an all staff meeting, which are all of our reps, not all staff, but all of our reps, we brought them all to New York at one point, which hadn't been done for a long time. And instead of talking about the way the organization was going to operate, which is the typical way a UN meeting like this would be conducted, we talked about future trends. So we talked about climate change. We talked about the illicit economy and the impact on children, like trafficking, and, and how that was, that was impacting. We talked about technology and what kind of technology changes we're going to have an, on, uh, an impact on the ability to address issues of poverty. Uh, you know, a range of sort of broader issues. And we got tremendously positive feedback from doing this. Plus, the opportunity for people to come together from, that were working all around the world was just tremendous. So I think that's one way also to, to actually, you know, have that communication. And they went back, re-energized. And I would get these emails that would say, you know, I learned this at the global meeting and we've applied this to this situation from some of our reps. It was, it was really, you know, it gave you that kind of feedback that it was a worthwhile enterprise. One of the other things we did, and I was a bit reluctant to do this, and I think many leaders are. Now that I serve on boards, I see that leaders are somewhat reluctant sometimes to agree to doing employee surveys. They have to be well-designed. 
but if they're well designed you can get a tremendous amount of information from them on a country by country basis now the way we did this was we only consolidated data into countries and if any office had less than 10 employees we we didn't use separate data because it would be too easy to identify specific people so it had to be anonymous but that became a tool one of the things we found out and it was the, the people, the consultants who did the survey for us said this was highly unusual for any organization, private or public, that they'd ever worked in. 93% of the people that worked for UNICEF were proud to work for the organization. That, that gave us something to really rally around. We're proud of what we do. But we also found things about our employees, um, where they felt, those who felt empowered to move forward or felt they had the opportunity to move forward. We, we had sex disaggregated or gender disaggregated data so we could understand did men and women feel they had equal opportunities. We had age disaggregated data. It was very helpful in looking at, at the kinds of things you needed to address at, with the workforce and became, became a tool for communication as well. So I would always, as I went on my country visits, take the results of the survey for that country and have a dialogue with them about that as well as the issues that they were working on. That's a powerful tool. Maybe you should uh, open it up for questions. Um, please feel free to ask any question or comment, uh, make any comment, and introduce yourself uh, before you do that. Yes? Open for if questions. If they don't ask questions, you get to ask <laughs> I have, more. I, have, I do. <laughs> I'm sure uh, somebody will be courageous enough to get started. So I just, I did have one question in particular. The role you currently play on several of these boards, notably the Nestle Corporation, how do you bring your experiences as a public servant to that board and try and build or maybe kind of align what you learned on the public sector with the private the sector and the way they operate because obviously there's 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 an overlap but at the same time there's going to be divergent opinions on what's best I, I think of course serving on a board and I I would not distinguish a, a, a company necessarily from a nonprofit I've been on many boards both nonprofit and then for-profit as well and I think you know it's certainly helpful um, to have people who have government experience on these boards because often on a corporate board, for example, you have people that have only had business experience. And so more and more boards are looking for that diversity of experience, whether it's government, there's more people that are from universities and have research backgrounds, um, some people from even NGOs that are now involved in, in corporate boards or from the communications world, because that's so important to what organizations do. I mean, I think all of these disciplines begin to help to build, you know, a comprehensive board for any organization. But one of the things I've found in serving on both for-profit and non-profit boards is, is when you've led organizations, many of the issues of any organization are similar. So you know, whether it's how you do your audit functions or what kinds of things you're looking at in terms of um, management or hiring employees or, I mean, just the whole range of issues that you work with in organizations. And so I think that the kind of leadership experience that I've had has been 
particularly important as well as my government experience. But the, the lead, having led organizations myself certainly helps me identify with the issues that the leaders are dealing with, um, the CEOs that you're then on the board of directors on. I can imagine you can be extremely, and you are extremely helpful to, in that particular role, uh, bringing your public service experience to, to, to the boards. What can we learn in the public sector from private, uh, from the private sector? What, what methods or tools do you think are there for us uh, in UNICEF or in uh, um, government or even in universities? Well, I think there, I think we have, uh, one of the things that's happened throughout society is we've tended to actually operate segments of society in silos as well. So government works over here and the private sector works over here, and civil society works over here. And we haven't really been very good at bringing all of those together. And yet the kinds of issues we're dealing with today as a society, be it in the developed or the developing world, I think it's gonna take everyone working together, and we've got to find ways to bring civil society, government, and the private sector together. Um, I actually believe that one of the, the most um, interesting tools that's being talked, to, talked about quite a lot now is the, the whole area of, that's been developed here at, at the Harvard Business School on creating shared value. How do, you, how, does, how do you begin to engage the private sector on how to create value for shareholders and value for society, which then really affects your development work, your poverty alleviation, and so forth. So for example, some of the food companies are working on the issue of, they, they have large um, numbers of agriculture extension workers now. Uh, as one food company, not the one I'm on the board of, said to me one time, we never thought about going that far down in the food chain. We'd always work with our suppliers, but not worked with our farmers. And that when you work with the farmers, you are, you get, you're able to, you know, sh show them how to farm better, to use pesticides better, so you cut down on the environmental impact, and um, you get more, better quality and more productivity and therefore better income to the farmer. So it's a total win-win. And by the way, this company that came to see me <clears throat> early when I was at UNICEF said, and we've gotten the, the children out of the workplace and into school with these extension workers. So there's all these win-wins. One of the things, one of the areas where the private sector really saw the benefit of this was, was in the mid-2000s during the AIDS pandemic in Africa, where they were having to hire about two workers for every position because they were dying so quickly. I mean, sadly. And they figured out if they began to incorporate in their workplaces testing and treating, that that was a lot more cost effective than continuing to hire more and more people and train them. I mean, it's truly a shared value concept of what's good for, you know, the economics is also good for society. And I think this concept of creating shared value, um, and how I think there's tremendous opportunity for the civil society to work more closely with businesses in bringing the expertise to the table. I see this happening much more uh, on the environmental side, where you see a number of the environmental organizations now working with 
uh, businesses in how to create more environmentally friendly practices. I think they've been, my own opinion is that's, that's, that's happening more quickly than it is on the development side. But I think there's tremendous opportunity for much more collaboration and then to under and for governments to understand how the collaboration can take place as well. One of the areas where we've seen a public health example of the private sector being very engaged, not as a company, but as sort of a broader private sector society, is look at Rotary and Polio. I mean, this has been going on for over 30 years. We've almost eliminated polio from the world today. And that would not have been possible without a very strong relationship among WHO, UNICEF, Rotary, and CDC. Um, that's been a partnership going on for 30, over 30 years. And, you know, India just uh, became, um, it was declared no longer endemic with polio. So I, I think. We need to look at these examples and say, how can we really engage all parts of society so they're not working separately, but working together to solve problems, to look at issues and what they all bring to the table. I mean, one of the areas, of course, is logistics. People constantly say, if Coca-Cola, if you can get a can of Coca-Cola out into the middle of nowhere, why can't you get vaccines for children? And it's a very logical question, and of course you can, but it takes collaborative uh, approaches and really looking at how you can come together to do these things. And we can't continue to look at each part of society as separate and working in separate silos, and I think really solve the problems that we need to solve in the future. Other questions? Maybe back there. Hi, my name is Aini, and I'm a second year doctoral student in the Environmental Health Department. Um, so earlier in the talk, you were talking about how setting a vision is important for a leader to do. Um, and I was wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how you went about in doing that at UNICEF and in your past leadership roles. Well, um, again, you, you don't want to go into an organization and completely change what's been going on. I mean, UNICEF has done tremendous work for many years. So um, as I stated before, I mean, we tried to look at how do we help people do their jobs better and get better outcomes for children. How do you, and, and it was really looking at how to use data better, how to use integrated approaches better, how to, to work with others. Um, you know, pro providing that vision of, of really how do we actually help to achieve the best outcomes for children overall in the world? How do we provide, I mean, one of the things I tried to introduce into, into UNICEF as a concept, as the UN agency, we should be providing leadership for children. And so the theme of our um, global meeting was leadership for children in a changing world was a kind of vision that, that you know, it, it implied um, providing that leadership, not ownership, but leadership, because there's a little bit too much ownership in organizations. They think we own children, and, and really it's about <laughs> leading for children. Um, and, then, and then providing, you know, the tools and, and providing that, that, that 
recognizing that there are, we've got to constantly be innovative about our approaches. We can't simply do things the way they've always been done. Hi, my name is Nicole. Um, I am a first year PhD in biological sciences of public health. Um, I was wondering about your own personal vision. So you started out in public policy and as a lawyer and then through agriculture and now working at UNICEF. So was that something that you intended to do or was that something that just happened along the way? I often get asked this question and it's a very good question because um, people, people have asked it a different way they will say, you know, what did you do to become in the cabinet or lead a UN agency? And I said, I never in my wildest dreams would have imagined doing these things in my life as a younger person. I mean, I never would have imagined it. So how did this happen? I mean, I, I often say that it really is about taking advantage of opportunities that came my way. And so I was, you know, a, I was a lawyer in my mid-30s, practicing law, a partner in a law firm, you know, in my hometown, and I had an op and I was doing a lot of work in public policy and agriculture in Washington, and I had an opportunity to go to work in the Department of Agriculture in Washington, and it was a big decision to just give up everything I'd been doing and go to Washington, and, but I took that chance and I took that opportunity, and it set my career on a completely different path that led me to trade and ag policy, led me to working in agriculture and then going back to California and leading the department there and ultimately becoming a member of the cabinet and then going to the UN. I mean, it was just a career I would have never imagined, but again, it was about taking advantage of those opportunities that come your way. So I often say to young people, you may think you know what you wanna do, but sometimes something will present itself to you that you have to really think hard about and decide whether or not you just will take a chance and take that path. Even if it doesn't work out, you can probably go back and do where you were going before. But I really think that taking advantage of that opportunity, often unexpected, can lead you places you never would have expected. It's one of the clear things is that you have been successful as a leader in many of these, all these positions. We were s sort of uh, talking earlier about um, that uh, whether it has anything to do with being uh, a woman. <laughs> you are uh, not only a successful leader, but also uh, the first um, woman to be a leader in a number of these positions. First woman uh, who is secretary of uh, agriculture in California, uh, first Secretary of Agriculture at the U.S. Uh, and prior to that, many firsts were uh, the same. So any perspectives or insights that you have from, from that aspect of being a woman and a leader um, that you can share with women prospective leaders in the audience? Well, um, I mean, I have been fortunate. I have, I have had the opportunity to be the first and in some cases the only woman in, in position, like uh, Secretary of Agriculture. Um, and sometimes it's not always easy to be the first or the only or to be the, the pioneer because there are people who doubt you and do not believe you can succeed. Um, 
I mean, I was the first, just to go back way far back in my career, one of my first jobs out of law school was I was in our, my home county in California in the Central Valley. I was in the public defender's office. I was the first woman ever. There were people that were very concerned about me being a woman in the public defender's office dealing with criminals. Well, of course, today, over 50% of the lawyers are women, and they're all over the public defenders and the DA's offices. But back then, people were actually concerned about it. So I've, over the years, I've run into people who were concerned about whether or not a woman can do the job. And I've always kind of been of the opinion that you, you just have to do the best job you, you, you can. You have to be competent at what you do. You have to, you know, not... Um, take an attitude like being a woman is something that you carry as a burden. You just, you know, you're an employee like everybody else and you do the job. Um, I mean, I do see, there are a lot of people who want to talk about do women have different leadership styles than men. And I think it's difficult to say that all women are this way or all men are this way. But I think there are certain kinds of leadership styles about many women, they tend to oftentimes be more collaborative and more inclusive in their leadership styles. Again, um, I see that as a positive leadership style that may be more apparent in a lot of women, but it should be something we all strive for. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, as early, early in my career, I heard Gloria Steinem speak, and she said something that stuck in my mind. This is over 30 years ago, but I was at the speech, and she said, we must, as women, open doors wide enough for others to get through. And one of the things I see today is that young women, like the students here, have the opportunity to walk through those doors much more easily than my generation did. But I think there is a concern being expressed of whether or not you are able, as you walk through those doors, can you then reach the leadership positions? And I think the leadership positions, we still see um, the numbers of women just simply aren't there yet in many, many professions. And so we all need to continue to strive to make sure that women are represented in equal numbers in, at every level of an organization. And it's not just the opportunity to come in the door, but to move up. I was just noticing that there are uh, only three or four men in the audience, so <laughs> we are the minority here, and these are the future leaders. Um, other questions? My name is Fawn Phelps, and I'm here with the Center for Public Health Leadership. I was curious if you could walk us through a crisis moment, mad cow, et cetera, and just how you get how you got the news, who you needed to call, and how you got everything across the finish line that you needed to get done. Very good question, and very good example. <laughs> um, we called the 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 mad cow situation. It happened on December twenty third, two thousand and three. We called it the cow who stole Christmas. <laughs> So, you know, I actually, I was very fortunate because I almost always left Washington at Christmas time to go home to California. And I had, this year, my brother and his family had come. And so I had taken my brother 
my brother's young son and and his mother to um, to see the White House decorations and then have have lunch at the White House in the White House mess, which as a cabinet member I had the uh, the privilege of doing. I get this phone call right when we were about to sit down, saying we think and we 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 dealt with this. We were slightly prepared for this because. This was December. In June, they'd had the first case in Canada. So we had done a lot to coordinate with Canada to deal with, help them deal with that situation. So it wasn't completely, you know, out of the blue. It's, it was, we were, we had some inkling that it, we could have a case sometime in the U.S. So, um, you know, I got the phone call. We were at lunch. I went back to the department. I was taking them actually to see the Christmas Carol that afternoon. They went off on that. And we brought everybody in the department together. We had, you know, a representative of the White House too and, and just it had to be a pretty small group because this was very market sensitive information. Um, and in, just start talking about what to do. We knew we had to go out publicly with this, but when there were some who were saying, we don't know enough, we can't say anything. We were starting to see markets just have a little tiny move in them. We knew we had to go out that day. And I said, and my press person and I knew we had to go as soon as possible. She and I were sort of on the same wing, wavelength on this. And so we, we had to gather as much as we knew, the, all the information we could get, put, you know, we had to notify the press. We did it at 5.30 after markets somewhat. Um, and, you know, we really had to then say, this is the situation, this is what we know, this is what we're doing to protect the food supply. And, you know, I, I added in my remarks that I was serving beef for my Christmas dinner and I felt confident in the food supply. Of course, that was picked up all over the world. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, I think it was the right thing to, to say because that particular disease is it, it, it the risk is quite low to human health unless it gets endemic throughout the whole cattle population and it, it doesn't really impact the cattle population unless they're over a certain age so it's not likely to be widespread and as long as you control what's going into the supply you should be fine and it's mostly a problem when you have you know cer certain cuts of meat we then communicated every single day. We had not, not necessarily just me, but we had members who were technical experts who were communicating with the press, giving them everything we knew each day. It was a real lesson in crisis communication. Within a week, the, the exactly a week to the day, two days before, the day before New Year's Eve, we then announced a whole series of things we were doing. Um, and one of the most controversial decisions was a decision I personally had to make and call the White House and tell them I wanted to do this, was to take downer cattle out of the food supply, which was considered to be one of the most high risk. Um, it was controversial. Um, and, uh, but we felt we had to err on the side of human health and public safety. And so we made this whole series of announcements. And I think, you know, one of the, real indicators of how well we were able to communicate the situation, what was being done to address it, what the risk was to human health, was that our consumption of beef never went down in this country.
Now we lost some of our export markets, so overall our industry was, was hard hit. But, but we, we maintained the confidence of the American consumer, which I think was um, an indicator of, of the way we were able to handle this crisis throughout a, ho throughout a holiday season when people would be eating you know, special cuts and so forth. And, and yet, um, it was not an easy time, and, but it, it took a lot of collaboration. We had a lot of other people involved. We had all throughout the department people involved in both the market side, the food safety side, the people that were the experts on animal health, the scientists, the researchers, you know, all, everyone had to be involved. It had to be that collaborative approach, but ultimately we had to make very quick decisions and communicate it as effectively as possible and then make the decisions about what to do about it and do that as quickly as possible. So um, it was difficult, but hopefully we, I mean, the results were in the fact that the, the consumer confidence l remained quite solid. Um, this has been a fantastic session. Um, it's too bad that it has to come to an end, but uh, I just want to thank you very much for uh, all the insights that you have given, uh, the experiences you have shared. Um, we should uh, have vision, uh, keep up with innovations, collaborate, uh, bring teams together, uh, and hire uh, the right teams and people to work uh, on the problems that we are facing. Um, as a leader, you have been a role model for many uh, others who are coming uh, behind you, uh, many of them in this audience, uh, and thousands others who will be able to benefit from that uh, as they watch the webcast. Uh, uh, over time once it's posted in the next couple of days. So thanks very much, and we wish you all the best in the years ahead as well. Thank you Thank very you. much. This has been a production of Decision Making Voices from the Field at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.harvard.edu backslash translation. We encourage you to share decision-making voices from the field.